everybody. Welcome to the Future of Podcast, a show about what our everyday activities could look like in, say, 10, 20, or even 50 years, and how we should prepare for these changes today. So I'm Trevor Paul. I'm Michigan's Chief Mobility Officer. And on today's show, we'll be looking at the future of public spaces, our parks, town squares, markets, beaches, sidewalks, and everything in between. These places often define our cities and give them life. Like, the quality of a public space often determines how we perceive a city. It's why people love going to Paris, Chicago, Boston, or Rome. In fact, we often choose where we live, where we vacation, by how accessible and how awesome a city's public spaces are, which is why they are so special. I mean, but the thing is, what makes Times Square the center of New York? Is it simply because of its location along Broadway? Or is it more than that? Is it the sights, smells, the sounds, and the bustle? And locally, what does the future of public space look like in the Midwest, specifically in Detroit and Michigan? What makes a good public space in Detroit and the Midwest? Some would argue we could be doing more with our public spaces. Could our public spaces be greener, bigger, have more activity? Could our spaces have more versatility in how they're used? And how could they better attract people from all over the world to, to Michigan and Detroit and Great Lakes states? Can they naturally blend with everything else around them, from the corner pub or a coffee shop to even a nearby garden, to the streets and the sidewalks that make up the boundaries of these public spaces? So there are so many questions. I feel like I just asked 60 questions in 60 seconds, but I actually have someone here today who can help me answer, I'm pretty sure, all of them. Mick Young Kim, it is great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Trevor. So, Mick Young, I'm going to brag about you for a second, if it's okay. You're the founder and design director of Mick Young Kim Design. You create public spaces, and you're actually working with Ford to help them transform the Michigan Central Station into something that people are going to know about from around the world. It's, it's right in the heart of Detroit's Corktown neighborhood, and it's so important to that neighborhood's revival. And in, in the past, you focused on large-scale urban, waterfront parks, the botanical gardens. Your work sort of reflects this deep commitment to capturing the public's imagination, which I love. And you've been featured in some of like the world's largest publications, the New York Times, National Geographic, Dwell, and the Chicago Tribune. So it is an honor to have you. I, I'm sorry if I made you blush. I could keep going. There are so many great things I've, I've read about you. So um, we could do that. We could keep talking, or we could get into the questions. What do you think? Oh, let's talk about public space. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine, fine. Um, so why do you think, in your mind, why do you think public spaces are so important? Well, I think, you know, as we think about the pandemic, you know, it's a really interesting time right now because um, in the past, you know, the pandemic has kind of inverted our understanding of public space. You know, before, to feel safe, we would kind of sequester inside, lock the door, close the windows. Um, but, you know, the landscape has become a refuge for many people during this pandemic. And I think the definition of public space has really changed. I think we really seek out the natural world. And um, I think it's really interesting because it's making us rethink as designers the way we build our cities as we look into the future, you know, that this, that our cities could be really a tapestry of landscapes and sidewalks that connect us really to each other in a way that's safe and um, that I think really connects us to nature. You're doing some pretty cool work in Detroit right now. In fact, you had mentioned you were here last week. 
So can you talk to us a little bit more about Michigan Central Station and why that development is so transformational and, and maybe even, I don't know, give us a, a look under the hood to, to hear more about what you're planning for, for that district. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to do that. We're really excited about it. I think it's a, um, it's a district um, rather than a singular park. It's got a collection of many different kinds of destinations within them. And parks are interesting. They're a little bit different from, let's say, designing a building where when you have a building, you're, you start off and you often have a program, like it's a hospital or it's a school. But um, at least public parks are for everyone. And so one thing that's really important to us in this park is to connect the various neighborhoods that would um, make this into a neighborhood park. So connecting Corktown and Mexican Town and all of the other schools that are in this area. Um, but our work at Michigan Central is really about transforming this part of Detroit just into a green, interconnected, sustainable district that, that you know, utilizes a lot of clean energy. And um, I think that starts with mobility technology. Um, that change in how we move through the city is going to change how parks are made. Um, but, you know, the bigger idea is just to, it's really simple, is bring us closer to, to trees, to water, to biodiverse habitats, um, having people share the landscape with pollinators like butterflies and bees and bringing back birds into the city. And, you know, we do this uh, with technology. So it's a very interesting kind of juxtaposition you know, I think uh, the technology for mobility and for all of the infrastructure that powers our design changes, I'd say, every day. And so part of our design has to really be about um, flexibility and really planning for that future. What are your favorite public spaces? So let's start in the Midwest, if you have one in the Midwest, and then the U.S. and then the world. And a quick snapshot as to why you love those public spaces. So in general, I love all open spaces. I think they're, <laughs> they're just an amazing amenity. Um, let's start internationally. Um, I love uh, the Garden Villa d'Este outside of Rome. Uh, I think it's in Tivoli and in the Midwest. I love... Um, Millennium Park. I love the Crown Fountain in Millennium Park. And in New York, I love Paley Park. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's an amazing, um, tiny little pocket park. Um, and you know, I think what connects all these places is, um, is that they all use water, water and light in really magical ways. Um, it's one of the tools in landscape that really kind of transforms a place. And I, you know, even our neighborhood park, which I love, you know, it's the place where I take my dog for a walk each day, I used to take my son to play, and it's just down the street. And I think all of these different kinds of parks are really what make a great city, you know. I, um, mm -hmm. But I think what connects them all is just 
the way in which you can engage water, you can hear the sound of water, you can get immersed in that experience. That's what really draws me. And it's such an interesting time to be focused on the future of public spaces because of autonomous technology, connected technology, shared technology, and obviously electrification. How do you envision technology enhancing public spaces going forward? I think cities are so interesting in the U.S. because they're historically really, except for maybe Boston, most cities in the U.S. are defined by, you know, gas-powered cars. That's, it's every urban planner, they lay down the dimensions they think the car needs and they lay down a grid. And then you infill that grid. But it's an interesting time right now. The technology for mobility is changing, as I said earlier, every minute. Um, and I think that's really going to change the way we think about the city. You know, right now, most cities, a lot of their open spaces are filled with parked cars. And Detroit is no exception. You know, there are par at great parking lots, parking garages, parking next to the sidewalks. And you know, just to give you an example, one way in which cities are going to change with technology, you know, we call them smart cities. And the automated vehicles, um, we no longer will need all these large parking lots. I know even today, structured parking lots are being designed with higher floor-to-floor -floor ceiling heights. Um, you know, looking forward to the future where um, when you need less parking because these driverless cars will drop you off and then move off site. Um, and so they, people imagine that in the future, these parking lots will be transformed into apartments or retail or schools. And um, so I think you, even cities, they're kind of rethinking what parks are. And so I guess in the end, what technology will bring us, a more humanistic city more parks, more gardens, more plazas, more multi-mobility, walking, cycling, skateboarding, scootering, and, and really give us more space to inter, interact with nature, you know, and interact mm -hmm. with each other. Um, so I'm very hopeful about the future of the city because I think it, it can only get better with the technology that's emerging. So. You know, when I think of a public space, I mean, I think of the serenity of a park, but then I also think about at night, the hustle and bustle of like a certain town squares around the world. And, you know, I've always thought like a city uh, of Detroit stature could light up more of its historic, but unoccupied, but centrally located, like assembly plants, buildings, almost like monuments to, to how far the city has come. Similar to what you see in like Rome or Lisbon or Paris at night or even in America, like Seattle and Gasworks Park, um, taking sort of industrial heritage and, and making it into sort of this world-class uh, place for people to gather. What role does lighting play in public spaces and attracting people and activity? And to that end, what, consideration, what other considerations do you make when designing something for both the day and the night, for both serenity and also activity? Um, how do you make these public spaces go around the clock? Yeah, I think, you know, nighttime activity, not only just day to night, but all season activity, especially in Detroit, 
we in Boston, we're here in Boston, and you guys in Detroit, we share this kind of intensity of change through the seasons. I think creating um, public spaces that can really transform from day to night is really important. Um, one of the things that we really think about in design and we're thinking about at Michigan Central is something that a lot of cities are concerned about, which is um, light pollution. And so um, right now, most buildings and parks are lighted, are lit in a way, in a one-size-fits-all manner. Um, they turn on at night and off in the morning. And um, what's really interesting is, you know, I think that light is a really important part of not just feeling safe, but also creating magic at night. And mm -hmm. there's all this new technology out there that both helps to make sure that we don't let light flood up into the sky, which is what light pollution is. And that's why when you do these aerial photos, I used to do a lot of work in East Asia and you would fly over um, to, I'd fly to Seoul, Korea, and you would see the difference between North Korea and South Korea. North Korea would be black, dark, because it was, it's at that time less industrialized than South Korea. And, but, you know, you think that's a good thing, but in some ways it's, it's been shown that it actually causes a lot of health issues within the neighborhood, childhood obesity in children, um, mental health issues for lack of sleep. And then it also um, interrupts uh, migratory patterns of birds. Um, and so one thing that technology can do today is it can create a more res responsive lighting system it uses um, occupancy sensors, so the more intensive a place is being used, a park, um, the more the lights turn on, the, the, dark, the brighter they become, and then they dim down when there are less people there. And I think that, that there are two reasons why that, I think that's really effective. Is one is that it does save energy, but I think that kind of restorative experience that you're talking about is also really important at night. And having light levels that are responsive to the kind of individual need, and that's what technology brings to the table, um, I think really transforms um, that night experience to not just one that's always bright and lit up as a kind of one size fits all, but one that kind of is responsive. And we have that technology in our homes and we're just bringing it outside. Mm -hmm. So you'd mentioned uh, saving energy, and that's a good transition, because I, I want to talk a bit about one of the major issues of our lifetime, climate change. What is the role of public space design in addressing climate change and creating a more sustainable urban environment? Climate change is the most pressing issue today. It's a global issue. It's a regional issue. It's a local issue. And... Um, you know, I think it's a really hard thing to grasp, um, to, to wrap your brain around, just because it, the change has been relatively slow and it's so massive that, you know, we see these changes, but I can see how people have trouble understanding it. You know, like if you change the color of your house, right, you immediately understand that change. But this incremental change is something that 
I think through our public parks, we really can make a big difference. And I think um, thinking about climate change, both in terms of you know, the warming of the earth, also with water. You know, water is, it, that's a global issue. I mean, I think, I read recently that nearly two billion people are gonna be affected to 2050 with just this global warming and rising sea level, meaning your homes will get flooded, your roadways will get flooded, there'll be more and more and more intense storm surges. And so it's not just about kind of how does it affect our daily lives, because it will affect some cities more than others. You know, it'll affect Miami probably more than it'll affect some inland Midwestern cities. But I think we need to, to, to step by step make a change. and and. I think that it's not just for environmental resiliency, but it's about um, global health as well. So I really feel like these two issues of human health and um, environmental health are, are integrally connected. You know, the, the less we provide in natural systems within the city, the less that we as populations can engage the natural world and the more, and it's been shown through a lot of the clinical research we've done, that the less access we have to even just trees, the, the worse our health gets. So um, I think the first step is in just reducing greenhouse gases and how do we do this? You know, it's, there is technology today that helps us do that. Um, you know, at Michigan Central, we are integrating clean energy technologies like solar and wind directly into the park and using and being inspired by nature, using natural systems like wetlands. Um, they're kind of like a nature's sponge. So when there's a huge storm, if we have, um, like at Michigan Central, I believe we have over two acres of wetlands and meadows that act like a sponge and um, hundreds of trees that also, trees are an amazing thing. They, you don't have to give them much care after you plant them and they do a lot of things for us. They clean the air, they mitigate storm surges with their leaves. Um, and so I think all of these things put together help us to, with the, with the parks in our cities, help us to mitigate some of these larger global issues. Yeah, speaking of issues, another issue, at least in North America, but other parts of the world too, I guess, is getting people to repopulate cities that have been hollowed out, you know, in some cases after a 20th century industry boom, or in other cases even recently because of the pandemic. So how do we, we talk a bit over the last couple of minutes about how parks can provide peace, refuge in, in busy cities, but how do parks stimulate economic development, bring jobs, bring activity, bring uh, commerce in, in ways that can prepare a city for a vibrant 21st century? Yeah, I mean, um, at the beginning of my career, you know, I was lucky enough to work on a greenway and restoration river in downtown Seoul. And I saw that in real time. Uh, it's a seven mile long river corridor and it, it, they transformed a highway, an overhead highway, into a greenway and riverway. And, you know, there, there's always pros and cons to every kind of transformation in the city. 
And I think that development, um, I think we have seen over and over again in every city with the High Line in New York City, with Millennium Park in Chicago, that parks really transform the development of a city. And um, we saw that in the Greenway here in Boston. I don't, you probably remember this. It was a huge investment at the time. They took a highway and sunk it underground and um, basically placed a Greenway on top of it. And so um, prior to, the, to that development of the Greenway, all of the high-rise buildings that faced the highway, basically they turned their back to the highway and their front doors were to the city that they were um, adjacent to. And um, I think what happened, it was sort of miraculous, within six months, all of these high-rise buildings that fronted this Greenway after it was developed they basically turn their front door and to, to face the Greenway. You know, we don't want to live in a city where we can't breathe, right? So people often ask me, like as an urban designer and a landscape architect, what is it that you really do? And I always say, well, you know, if you, can, if you look up and you can see the sky and where your feet are, that's our realm. So the sidewalks, the parks, and all of that. And what we've learned over the last 10 years is that we have to be very careful on what kind of development. So this, is, this goes back to zoning and code um, that cities start to integrate as cities like Detroit are kind of developing and integrating uh, great public spaces into their um, urban environment is to make sure that the neighborhood that's there now can still feel safe and feel that they can um, still inhabit that enhanced space while we also kind of make the, that district within the city better. And so we've seen that over and over again in other cities where it's so wildly successful. So that original example I gave to you in Seoul, um, you know, we found that the neighborhoods that front the Seven Mile River Corridor, some of them have been displaced. And I think that as a larger planning exercise, we learned a lot of lessons from that on how to ensure that while we're making a place um, better, more uh, bringing more nature into the environment, that we also make sure that we're not displacing populations that have lived there for, for many decades. We've mentioned a lot of great cities. As Detroit looks, there are other Michigan cities look for inspiration when thinking about the future of the accessible to all places in their city, the, the places that represent the heart of what a community is all about. What cities or city or, you know, from anywhere in the world can serve as an inspiration? Not necessarily because of what they already have, like. You mentioned Chicago and Millennium Park, but just how they look at public spaces, like the mentality, the mindset that 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 city would have. So any cities we have not mentioned that we can look to as role models going forward. Right. Um, I think that Portland and I've mentioned Boston, but Boston, the, those are two cities I know quite well. Mm -hmm. And I think they're a great model for Detroit. Um, 
Detroit is on the cusp of some very exciting transformations. And the reason why I point to those two cities is that they have, um, like within five minutes, you can walk to a park. Anywhere in the city, <laughs> you have access. So they're less built on um, the urban design model where you have like this grand central park, right? Which, which in socioeconomic terms, are less accessible for some populations in the city. And I, I like this more egalitarian model of the city where anyone of any background, any socioeconomic status can enjoy um, their park and, and take ownership over their neighborhood park. Um, I think both cities also do a great job of um, integrating technology into these green cities and so that the technology becomes almost invisible. So Boston is a city that is, is becoming, I don't know if it's the um, second coast or the third coast or whatever after Silicon Valley, but it's, you know, all of these tech companies are moving into Boston. But it is that kind of more dispersed language of laying down uh, green space in a way that is more accessible, more inclusive, mm -hmm. and, and allows for a greater diversity of experiences for the city. I think that, that's the model of the future. Thank you, McYoung. How can our listeners find you online if they wanted to say, keep the conversation going? Yeah, so they can send us um, both an email at office, O-F-F-I-C-E, at myk-d.com. And we're on all social media platforms. So Trevor, we can provide that information to you, our Facebook and Twitter accounts and things like that. Well, there you have it, listeners. Also, do not forget to subscribe and have the Future of Podcast right at your fingertips, downloaded each month through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on how the state of Michigan is shaping the future, visit michiganbusiness.org backslash mobility mi thanks again everybody talk to you soon